0: Welcome to Tech Deciphered. We bring you the entrepreneur and investor views on big tech, VC and startup news, opinion pieces and research. We decipher their meaning and add inside knowledge and context. Being nerds, we also discuss gadgets and pop culture news. Hi, I'm your co-host, Nun Gonçalves Pedro. I'm an investor and I'm the co-founder and managing partner at Strive Capital. And I am your
1: co-host, Bertrand Schmidt, tech entrepreneur, co-founder and chairman at App Annie. We have both been in tech for almost 25 years, are now based in Silicon Valley, having previously worked and lived in Europe and Asia. With Tech Deciphered, discover how the best entrepreneurs pitch, how investors think, and what are the deep trends underlying the tech industry. You can check the latest on our website, decipheredshow.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at bschmidt, and at ng
0: pedro if you enjoyed the show do us a favor subscribe give us five stars and or leave a review on apple Podcasts app or your favorite app this will help other people discover tech deciphered today in episode 16 we will have our second episode on our software as a service primer for further reference please also listen to our episode 15 where we started this discussion Today, we will talk about sales and pricing, and we will go a little bit in depth into these topics, and we will see where the discussion heads. As always, we always get very, very verbose when we get excited, as you guys know.
1: Exactly. Let's start t- today on the sales side. The sales motion, the sales process is obviously a critical part of any business, but SaaS has its own approach to sales. It's very tightly connected to the financing, obviously. We'll talk later about financing. What do we see as a benchmark of percentage spend of sales and marketing as a percentage of ARR? What we can see, and we are leveraging some slides from OpenView Partners, is that across the range, you are at the lowest, around 30% of spend in sales and marketing early on, below the 2.5 million ARR barrier. And then it goes up 35, 40, potentially 45% of spend on median from 2.5 million to 10 to 20 to 50 beyond 50. This is a median. So we see a pretty wide range, plus or minus 15% of these numbers. So if I were to take a different stage, we can see that the wider range would be from 15 to 60% being spent in sales and marketing. So widely different range and usually it depends on the business model. If you have a more product-led growth, you will spend less in sales of marketing. If you are a more traditional, I will call it old school SaaS approach, you will usually end up with higher sales and marketing spend.
0: And I would highlight two interesting pieces of this chart. One, it seems once you get to a certain critical mass of ARR, let's say about 50 million in this case, that the costs will start reducing as a percentage of your ARR which makes sense. You can start optimizing. You have a certain scale and a certain brand and there's a lot of things you can do. The second effect, which might actually correlate to that as well, is in many cases, companies are growing really fast to get into the 50 million ARR or 100 million ARR. So they're spending their way into the market. We discussed it in our previous episode. They're doing a land grab type strategy. And so there may be overspending on sales or on marketing Overall for customer acquisition. And therefore, once they taper at 50 million or 100 million, they might actually then optimize their sales and marketing costs. Also, the lines at some point, let's say the 100 million mark, 120 million mark, would you want to go public as a company? And therefore, at that stage, you definitely need to align your sales and marketing costs so that the markets are like, okay, this seems like a good amount. So again, I don't think there's anything shocking about this chart. The next chart, which is sales and marketing spend by dominant sales channel, for me was a little bit more surprising. Certainly, Indirect seems to have the lowest spend as percentage of ARR, which makes sense in a certain way because you're really going through a channel that should be the value of a channel, that it takes away some of your marketing and sales costs. The part that I think was a little bit more counterintuitive to me, certainly that self-service actually still as very significant sales and marketing spend. And I would assume that a lot of it is driven by marketing rather than sales, but it's still very significant. And from a median perspective, seems very similar with, for example, field sales, which for me is almost mind-blowing that they would have such similar cost bases, again, on a combined sales and marketing basis. What do you think, Bertrand?
1: Yeah, I think it's what it is. It's combined sales and marketing. So if I take some situation like self-service, self-service without freemium, it's a lot of marketing actually to convince people to go to your site, to come use your product and pay for it immediately without a chance to have proper trial or free usage of the product, build the trust step by step, so you're going to spend more. So I'm actually not surprised that on the freemium side, it's probably where you have the opportunity to spend the less in combined sales and marketing. And at the same time, if you're self-service only or field sales, you have an absolute minimum to spend that is significant enough in sales and marketing. And we're seeing that with a median of 30%, the minimum is actually 20%. It can go as high as 60% spend in sales and marketing for self-service. What's interesting for me is also indirect business model can be actually quite efficient based on these numbers, not only as efficient as a freemium business model. But we also know that indirect sales business model is usually coming with a slower growth. On one side, or also less control in a way on your future. So I always have some suspicion on the indirect business model. I think some companies manage to do it very well, like Shopify, but some others, I'm not sure about that indirect business model channel-based approach was really the right decision.
0: What about inside sales? It seems to be the least efficient by far. Is it because it's a hybrid dimension? There's marketing costs on it. And there's a lot of sales costs on it as well. It seems to be the most inefficient if you look at certainly as a percentage of ARR. Is it because it's a mix of both? It's aggressive mix of both?
1: It's a mix. It cannot be as efficient as freemium where it's coming from the product. It cannot be as efficient as self-service because you have salespeople to really pay. And salespeople, ultimately, it will always end up being the mass, make it worse, and a uh, marketing Led growth like you would have in sales. So I'm not totally surprised. And usually inside sales is focused on a very small business with a lot of churn. It's a game where you keep putting bodies. So I'm not totally surprised. And field sales is a more traditional enterprise approach. And this one has been optimized for, I would say, a long while. And we know that there is less churn in enterprise business model. So all in all, to see that freemium is probably the most efficient business model, followed by self-service and field sales, I'm not totally surprised. For me, the surprise is more on the indirect channel. But again, I think if it looks efficient, if we were to look at other metrics like growth rate, indirect, might not look as exciting as it sounds.
0: Exactly. Which is the next slide. Maybe not that exciting.
1: Exactly. So this next slide is actually pretty good because it's showing a comparable of how fast you can go depending on how much you rely on external channel partners. And here what we can see is that your growth efficiency is actually much better if you don't have indirect sales channel. The number is 1.39. If you have zero percent going through sales channel, and keeps going down to zero point four eight if you have more than twenty five percent of your customers acquired through sales channel and what it means is the growth rate also is halved the more you go through sales channel and having some experience with that it's not surprising because when you have to manage conflict between external sales channel your own sales channel, very few companies just rely on indirect. You have to manage conflict. You have to train partners. Partners might talk a lot, but ultimately don't deliver much. There are some industry metrics where only one third of your partnerships actually deliver value. I'm not surprised. It's a lot of work, a lot of management to deliver something that is truly efficient. My take is that if some Shopify managed to be very successful with this approach is that it was not a traditional channel partner approach. It was more a freemium type of partner approach where you let the partner do some little work, some advertising, some convincing, but ultimately the partners were close to irrelevant beyond advising the product to the customers. Everything else could be done by the SaaS business.
0: Moving to sales commissions, I was actually quite surprised by this chart. Obviously, in median initial contract sizes above 250K, we do see obviously a drop around the sales commissions, where the median there's between 10 and 12%. So 10 for direct and 12% for fully loaded. But overall, it seems like the medians are between 10 and 13%. Again, 10% for direct and 13% for fully loaded. Very surprising to me because actually there's some variance here in the middle in these smaller contract sizes, like 5 to 15 and 15 to 25K range. But honestly, very similar across initial contract sizes up to 250K.
1: I'm not totally surprised because ultimately the amount of effort to sell something is usually directly correlated to its price. So the more work you have to put in place, the more expensive the price, the more time you spend on And ultimately, at the end of the day, people have to eat, people have to get paid. And so if you are selling very cheap stuff, you better sell a lot of this. And if you are selling very expensive stuff, you don't need to sell as much. And as a result, ultimately, proportionally, you have to pay your salespeople a similar amount of money per unit of paid product. So it's a good confirmation. It would have been interesting if it was not so there in the data. But it's definitely there in the data. Your sales commission as a function of the median initial contract size is very stable across all contract size. And as you said, it's hovering between 10 to 13% overall, which is a key metric. And I think a lot of these benchmarking activities when you are SaaS companies is quite critical to understand are you running your business more or less rationally, more or less like other companies. And if it's widely different, That might be okay as long as you have a very good, clear, strong explanation about why. If we look at distribution of quotas for the salespeople account executive, there are very different quotas depending on the type of markets you are looking at. If you are targeting very small businesses, your quotas might be below 250k for more than 50% of the sales team. However, on the opposite side, if you're on the enterprise side, you might have above a million dollar for thirty two percent of the sales org of the startups targeting enterprise market, depending on the target customer segment, very small to s m b to mid market to enterprise, you will end up with higher and higher quotas for your sales organization and I would say that in a lot of cases ultimately you are hovering in that range of five hundred to a million dollar in quotas for most of the segments except against a very small business or the very large enterprise where we have to extreme. So again, another good benchmark to think when it's time to set quotas for your sales organization. And very often, some companies, people will tell me, oh, my quotas are much lower, it's much more difficult to sell my enterprise product or something like this. I'm like, no, actually, if you're truly enterprise, you should have higher quotas. And if you don't, two options. Either your pricing is wrong and you need to change your pricing model, or you have a product market fit issues. And that's where you start asking the questions. That's where you try reverse engineering the process, the business model, and potentially have to make some change.
0: And moving to sales efficiency, the magic number, which shows the revenue contribution from every dollar spent on sales and marketing. Interesting analysis from OpenView It shows certainly early on that sales efficiencies actually vary quite a lot, but they're probably at their highest. And then later on, as companies scale dramatically, in this case, above $50 in annual recurring revenue, that sales efficiency drop out dramatically. So actually, the revenue contribution from every dollar spent on sales and marketing drops dramatically down. On average, we're told that sales efficiency is about 0.7. So every dollar spent on sales and marketing contributes $0.70 of revenue.
1: Yes, I'm not surprised when I'm hearing people that explain that their efficiency will get better over the years. That's a funny point, but an interesting point because history shows that's not true. Why it's not true? It's because you will have multiple ways to distribute and monetize your product. Again, you can have your direct sales force, your own product. You can have paid marketing, paid advertising. You can have free advertising, SEO. Basically, you will use initially your best, most efficient channels. But step by step, these channels will dry up and you will have no choice but to manage multiple channels to just keep the volume in. And because you want to keep the volume in and you want to keep increasing fast, even at very large scale, you will have to add more and more channels, which would be more complex to manage, a much more complex organization to manage, to report, to analyze the numbers. And ultimately, you decrease your efficiency. Because again, if you have to start a business from day one, you better find initially the best channel to push your product just to survive. But step by step, you will need to take, I would say, nearly any channel so that you can get to your gross numbers. To keep going on the sales efficiency, CAC, customer acquisition cost, how much is spent to get a customer. Another way to look at CAC is a payback in months. How much does it take you to pay back from customers' gross margins? your initial spend in customer acquisition. And what we see is that it varies quite widely. And here, the payback, no surprise, again, is faster early on in the life of your business, a median around seven, eight months. Then you go up, you accelerate your scale, and around 10, 20 million of AR, you are around 15 months And then beyond that, you stick around 15 months. And what's happening, I guess, is that it's becoming your maximum. People don't feel so comfortable if you go beyond the two years in terms of CAC payback. There is too much risk, usually. The only way to feel less risky is how long is your average contract duration. If your average contract duration is two years, three years... Taking the risk in a longer term cap payback is still a possibility, but we see a lot of business if you are not pure enterprise that are closer to the 12 months to 18 months contract. Therefore, you want to feel that you have a payback that is faster than that, ideally.
0: If we move to retention rates versus growth, the interesting piece here is we're analyzing average logo retention and average net dollar retention. So, just to be clear, average logo retention is the logo is a client, my customer, and average net dollar retention is how much money am I making off each company that I'm working with, which obviously can be above 100%. Two really interesting lessons learned here: clearly, the best in class have an average net dollar retention above 100%, which means they're actually making more money year on year as they're growing really rapidly than they were making before. So in this case, if you're a company that has an annual growth above or equal to 100%, basically your average net dollar retention is 108%. Interestingly enough, the median net dollar retention for public companies was 107%. So this stays true while companies are effectively becoming public so at the time of the S1 filing. The other side is also interesting to take a look at. The logo retention or the average logo retention seems to be less of a prominent issue in some ways. So there's good enough logo retention, which means there's natural churn. I will lose customers. And for example, even for companies that are growing at or above 100%, the average logo retention is 86%, which is slightly better than those at a growth rate below 30%, which is 85%. So again, it seems to be An interesting factor, almost like a sanity factor, but there is natural churn. And in some ways, I would say there's a nuanced view on this, which is sometimes you actually need to let some of your worst customers churn out. And if they churn out, then actually you focus just on our better clients and you step in. And part of your growth comes not just through logo growth, but it comes through upselling and cross-selling your products to some of your existing clients that actually are very positive contributors to your margin.
1: Not sure I would put it that way, that you let churn your worst clients. I don't see anyone in the data that it's your worst clients that are churning. But what is clear is that there is natural logo churn, client churn, simply because companies go out of business. Companies change business model. Companies lose so much market share, have negative numbers, and they have to cut costs. So there is something natural to it, at least in terms of logo churn. But as you say, net dollar retention, I think, is a key metric to follow. And this one, around 90%, you have lower growth. If you are significantly beyond 100%, you will have much faster growth. It's simply because you don't even need to add new clients if you manage to get more than 100% from your existing clients year after year. So therefore, you can much more fine-tune your business. Your sales motion is more efficient. You will have better word of mouth, all of this. So it's really a different business model. So... If you can manage to build a business model that gives you a higher than 100% average net dollar retention, you are in a good place. And to close this section around sales, going back to product-led growth, there was this interesting slide from OpenView Partners around what is the impact of COVID-19 on product-led growth companies. And what we see is that actually product-led growth companies significantly outperform their SaaS peers on the stock market in terms of revenue multiple. We see a significant gap of close to 6x of the product-led growth companies versus the traditional SaaS companies since COVID-19. And for me, it makes sense because if product-led growth is a backbone, Actually, COVID-19 didn't change anything to your sales and marketing motion. It's still centered on your product on people leaving easy access or free access to a version of your product and going higher up in terms of spend from there, where more traditional approach will be focused on traditional marketing, traditional sales approach. But if I take traditional marketing, there is no more event going on. You cannot meet your customer face-to-face. You cannot send your sales team to a sales convention or to go meet your clients. So you need to have a different approach. We use Zoom, we use other stuff. But obviously, there is some disruption in that approach. You cannot build the same rapport. So at the very least, you have to significantly change your business model in a rush. And ultimately, these companies, in a way, got punished by the markets because of that.
0: And moving to pricing. Pricing. We had quite an interesting, or at least I had quite a bit of sharing on pricing in the first episode and and showing some of my pet peeves around pricing. Probably one of the most underused levers early on in the history of software as a service company. We start with average contract value by target customer type. Nothing surprising in the numbers. I'll deep dive in a little bit on some of the dimensions and dynamics of these numbers. Obviously, enterprise as average contract values. And so one would expect that if you're targeting enterprises, most of your annual contract value is going to be around 10 to 50K or 50 to 250K. So again, your annual contract value would be around the five-digit, six-digit mark for these companies. The interesting piece here for me is actually you see companies that target enterprise that obtain very small annual contract values. And their average annual contract value is probably in the below 10K mark. Now, there's something wrong about that. If you're focused on enterprise and your annual contract value on average is well below 10K, there's something wrong. Either you're not creating very much value for those companies or your market is by necessity very depressed or niche, not that exciting, or you're targeting the wrong type of clients. And maybe you could be untapping much larger pool of clients if you're going after small businesses or after the mid-market. So again, basically, I think OpenView is a little bit facetious in saying pro tip stops selling enterprise deals for below 25 k If you're selling to enterprises with the cycles of sales that we know are longer, with the complexities of selling, and then you're getting away with an annual contract value that is 5K or 10K, there's something wrong. Again, either your target is wrong, your target market is wrong, or your pricing is wrong, but there's definitely something wrong.
1: I agree. There is something wrong. I see a few explanations. One is that you're mostly selling to SMB and mid-market. You are going step-by-step to enterprise. You have not priced it yet correctly to the enterprise market. You are still pricing it as if it was SMB or mid-market. Obviously, it's a mistake because usually it's more difficult to sell to enterprise. It requires more time and effort. But at the same time, if it's a purely self-service product, for instance, it might not be such an issue, actually. If we take some of the typical SaaS companies that managed to move well from in-market to enterprise, box and dropbox, for instance, what we can see is that the more they move up market, the more they started to build enterprise type of features, as well as build up a separate enterprise sales team. So I think you can start putting your toes in the enterprise market in a cheap way, as long as you are very careful about being efficient selling at these price points. And step by step, it can give you the insights to build a better match offering for this market. If we look at what are the primary mode of distribution of your software based on your average contract size, no surprise. If you are selling very, very cheap below 1K, the biggest chunk at 29% of your distribution will be through internet sales. After that, at a similar level, actually, inside sales also at 29%. And we also see... Mix channels uh, being at 29%. 1K to 5K, 5K to 15K, 15K to 25K, what we see is a huge importance of inside sales. Below 1K, it's tough to pay an inside sales team on average. It's just too cheap. If you go in that sweet spot of 1K to 25K, then your inside sales might be your best weapon, especially if you're not product-led as a company. But then step by step, you move into field sales. And starting at 25K and beyond, that's probably what you need. You need a strong team of field sales that can go after this bigger account and know how to sell in a more complex way, a bigger amount to bigger customers. And if you go beyond 100K, what we see is that you have a huge preponderance of field sales, around 90%.
0: One interesting thing about this slide, obviously this is based on a sample of 251 respondents, but one interesting thing is internet sales, it disappears at uh, median initial contract sizes above 15K. It just disappears. So the whole notion that I can still sell high value contracts online through internet sales and optimization around it is simply not true or at least for this sample size it's simply not true i'm not surprised the average billing frequency one year, and this takes me to one of my pet peeves as well with young entrepreneurs in particular that are sometimes great engineers and great product people, but maybe a little bit more challenged on the financial side. Again, bookings is not the same as revenue. You acknowledge your revenues over the time period that you need to fulfill your services in. So if it's an annual contract and it, let's say I'm renting my services on a monthly basis, your revenues are acknowledged on a monthly basis, right? And the booking is not the same as revenues. And the shocking thing thing is that there's still a lot of entrepreneurs that when they come in and pitch venture capital firms, they still confuse bookings with revenues, as shocking as it may seem. Interestingly enough, very high proportion of billing frequency around one year. I thought it would be lower. I thought monthly will actually be a little bit more pervasive, but certainly 57% apparently at one year.
1: Usually these metrics depend a lot on your type of client, the amount of your contracts. The bigger the client, the bigger the contract, the longer will be your contract length. And the less often you bill, which is obviously a better thing for you, because if you can bill six months, 12 months, 18 months, you will be able to bring a lot of cash before having to run the service. So it's a huge key part of the financing strategy. The more you can get your clients to finance you by paying in advance a year of service, the better you are and the less you will need external financing. So this one for me is really critical. As soon as your contract size is big enough, you should really push to one-year contract at least. That's really the industry norm. Nobody would push back too much. And yes, now during COVID, it might be a bit more difficult, but ultimately, that's something that's widely accepted. And one reason being most companies think on a yearly basis, you are not making investment for the three months, for the six months. You are going to keep being at it for at least a year. So nobody will be shocked in enterprise at least or mid-market to go after a one-year deal. There is this famous saying about bundling versus unbundling. Every new business opportunity is either a bundling or an unbundling of an existing offering. So pricing is the same. It's a question of how do you bundle or unbundle your offering? So when do you want to bundle pieces of your offering? You want to bundle when these pieces of the offering address the same customer needs, the same pain point or use case. You want to bundle Items that target the same buying center. Because if it's different buying center, you will want to have a different approach. And what you want to bundle also is lower value items. That could be a distraction for the sales discussion. And everything has to be efficient when you're in a sales motion. So now that we saw what to bundle, what is it that you should not bundle? You should not bundle if it's really highly valuable or differentiated functionality. No point to give freebies. You want to not bundle if the value is only for a different subset or different buying center, because then it will be a separate discussion, a different painful discussion, and better to have it separately, or at least to make it very clear why it's separate, how much it is. And then finally, you don't want to bundle if the different items have different perceived value and you feel it's not the right approach for your clients.
0: And switching to actually a really interesting slide from McKinsey on how to think through pricing, the units of pricing and how you price for it, and also the premium and the logic of value. I think it's one of those cases where I'd say that the right-hand side, which is really the link of premiums when a unit of pricing scales the closest to value. So basically, when it's very clear that the unit that you're pricing the product for is very aligned with the value that it provides. Obviously, commands premiums, right? I would say the duh from Homer Simpson, but it's obvious, right? And the point here is you need to be very close. Your pricing units need to be very close to what your customers see as value of your product. So if you're charging for something that actually has no alignment with the value creation unit for your client, then they wouldn't see the premium in it. What one would call the almost blindingly obvious. Let's talk about pricing units. In episode 15, I already referred in particular to one case study that I recently have with in a discussion with a startup. There's horses for courses. There's different pricing mechanisms depending on the market that you're in and who you're serving. Obviously seats is very much well used. So paper seats, it's actually close to the old licensing agreements that we had in pure and installed software. There's variations on it from named users so people that have access to the software as a service instance, concurrent users, time use, and companies in there would be classically companies like SAP, Zendesk, Salesforce, Oracle, and others. There's software usage, so you pay for what you use, like number of marketing campaigns, uh, subscription revenue, API calls, companies like uh, Marketo more on the Mark Tech side, Apogee, which is obviously on APIs. So that makes a lot of sense. So I'm charging for the things you're using for me. Hardware linked usage, normally more linked to companies that are in the infrastructure as a service or platform as a service space. So I'm paying for cores, for devices, for data volume. So again, Amazon Web Services, Palantir, and a few other companies would charge according to that. Buyers business metrics are where companies are charging really for your core business metrics. So it's not so much per number of seats. So companies like Workday that are more in the HR space where you're paying for the number of employees that you have, or you're paying based on the revenues that you have, or you're paying based on the COGS that you have. And finally, and definitely not the least, which links back to the case study that I illustrated in episode 15, success-based pricing. Sometimes you're creating so much benefit for your customers that you should take a percentage of that. You should take a percentage on an increase in return on investment, on an increase on collected debt by that client, on an increase in revenue by that client. Again, it depends very much on the ecosystem that you're in, what players already exist in that market, if that's a well known practice or not. In some cases, people do resist dramatically to you charging to get some money that, you know, in some cases, people would see as their core business, the generating of revenues or the reduction of costs. But in many spaces, this is wildly accepted and you shouldn't leave money off the table. If you're making your clients tens of millions or hundreds of millions wealthier because of your operations and transactions, maybe there is a space there for you to charge a percentage of that as well.
1: I agree. I want to highlight that how you price your product is generally very tightly connected to your product itself, what it does, how it works, how it's used, how it's designed, So there is only so much you can put a seed-based type of pricing on a product that doesn't make sense on a seed-based pricing simply because all the users see the same view of the product. You don't have your own value by using the product under your name, for instance. And on the other end of the spectrum, success based can be great. And at the same time, if no one in your industry is using that approach and all your competitors have a different approach. It might be extremely difficult competitive-wise to push for such a business model. You will need to have a very strong argument around your product and how it's different from others to be able to sustain a value proposition, else your clients will always go to the cheapest one. Because if you can get the same value delivered, why not pick the cheapest off-line?
0: And maybe just to interject there's this notion that sometimes things that seem obvious are not that obvious. And I remember very early on, there were companies that said, okay, this other company is charging on API calls, so I should charge it as well. But in some cases, they forgot that company was charging on API calls from developers, and they were charging on API calls from big corporates. And charging on API calls from big corporates might not be intuitive to whoever's the customer on the other side and is paying for it. And I was like, what does that mean? So again, horses for courses, right? It's not even the competition dynamics or the dynamics around how it is. You need to adapt to what your customer achieves value to, and sometimes even what they understand. We know this very well coming from the mobile space and being consumers in the mobile space when people were charging for megabits in ways that were very unclear, We didn't know what the megabyte was of consumption on our mobile phones. And so that was not the right way to charge. So again, horses for courses.
1: That was not the right way to charge, but at the time, let's not forget, it was 3G networks, very slow, very limited capacity. So there was a scare that you simply cannot afford it as a telco, but with 4G, suddenly you have a different product and you can have a different business model. I still believe ultimately it's tightly connected to your product capability and your customers. And customer, it's not just The company overall, as you say, is it corporate, is it sales, is it engineering? And it's very well known that, for instance, your engineering clients are very different buyers than your corporate. So there would be different approach depending on your target customers. But there is only so much you can push in a business that is not widely expected by your customer base. So a few takeaways that I like, it was coming from OpenView. One is don't be too cheap. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are not worried. Actually, (laughs) are worried to go too expensive. So don't be too cheap. Two, the right value metrics. Yes, that's very key. The more efficient you are aligning your price with the value and finding the right metrics to do that, as we just saw, will help you sell faster and more. Three, sell to customers the way they want to buy. There is only so much you can push a client to pay per seat if he's used to pay per API for this type of product, for instance. Four, usage-based pricing and the right feature packaging drives net negative churn. Or another way to put it, drives higher than 100% net dollar retention. And I think that one is key. Depending on your product and client base, and therefore ultimately what you can achieve in pricing, you can have a type of pricing that would drive better business models. So you cannot always push in that direction if it's absolutely not natural for your product and industry. But there are some pricing models that you can achieve, that can drive better returns. And five, experiment and iterate on pricing. Yeah, I think that's great. Be careful not to do it too much too often because your customers might get lost. But experimenting, iterating is a key part of the game, especially if you can do it based on data and scientifically.
0: I would add a sixth pricing takeaway, which is you might sometimes get stuck on a price you really don't want to get stuck with by making a very simple mistake very early on in your life. I think a lot of people underestimate the power of early pricing to big clients. And they say, well, I'm just trialing it out and it's proof of concept and it's trialing, et cetera. And by the time you're on your fifth client and similar client, you've anchored around the pricing. So again, be very thoughtful, actually much earlier on. What I see with early stage startups is they think about pricing way too late. I think thinking about pricing very early, very thoughtfully is important.
1: I totally agree with that. I think that pricing is probably one of the most underused lever, And at the same time, in some ways, one of the easiest levers to change and adapt all things considered, where you can drive a lot of value at extremely limited cost for the business. So we are going to conclude episode 16 on our SaaS primer. This is our second episode on our SaaS primer. And in our next episode, episode 17, we are going to finish our SaaS primer. See you next
0: time. You can check the latest on our website, thecipheredshow.com. You can connect with us on Twitter at B Schmidt and at ngpedro. As a disclaimer, these are our own opinions. We're not representing the views of any company. If you
1: enjoyed the show, subscribe. Give us five stars or leave a review on Apple Podcast app or your favorite app, which will help other people to discover Tech Decipher. Thank you for listening. See you next time.